Oh boy. Hello everybody. And welcome to the uh, the Hollywood meta wrap-up. Just a quick note before we get into the episode here. This one is just a comedy of errors in terms of audio quality. Uh, there's babies screaming in the background. Uh, Travis uh, makes a joke at the end that he fixed his audio, which he did for the player episode. If you haven't listened to that, you should. Um, but then somehow managed to revert his audio settings back to uh, using his laptop mic. So when we get to the joke at the end of the podcast there, you should get a extra appreciation for that. Uh, this one was delayed because I was trying my hardest to try and fix up the audio before I realized it was probably a lost cause. So it's not terrible. It's just unfortunately, unfortunately, a bit of a, uh, a step backwards from where we thought we were with the players. So hopefully when we start our next trilogy, we uh, will have it all sorted out again. But uh, with that said, here we go. And welcome to another fabulous wrap-up show here at the Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. And today, I did not do my homework ahead of time. Um, <laughs> so we are reviewing the wrap-up for, was it? The Meta Hollywood Mod Trilogy. 2000, Meta Hollywood Trilogy, but it was 2001's Mulholland Drive, 1967's The Producers, and 1992's The Player. So, uh... Travis, while I try and get myself together here, um, what, what did you think of the wrap-up? Well, I'll let you know what I think of the wrap-up after we do it, Brett. But the trilogy, I thought uh, I thought it was one of our stronger <laughs> ones. Um, I know sometimes when we pick a theme for a trilogy, we find out that the theme doesn't exactly apply across all three movies. Uh, I know the producers technically was, I believe, set in New York because it was more of a Broadway uh, production, but it's still show business. So Hollywood mm -hmm. show business. I think it really a core theme across all three movies is you really kind of have to sell your soul, at least to an extent, to be successful in showbiz. Because uh, I thought that held true across all three movies. Um, so that's an easy way to tie all three together. I'm sure we'll have other thoughts, but what do you think about that general premise? Oh, absolutely. That was that was kind of my thought. Was yeah, we did kind of have the outlier with the producers. Um, but with that said, they all revolved around show business, and I would imagine that what the producers frames around, I would imagine there has to be a situation like that could have happened in Hollywood where you're betting for the flop type situation where you produce a movie and you're hoping that it just completely bombs. So I thought that uh, it, it definitely worked out in our favor. Um, plus, it was just I thought it was a, a good balance because we had kind of a, a weird crime thriller and then we had a straight up comedy and like a dark comedy crime thriller. So it, somehow they all kind of meshed together, which really worked out. Well, and I wanted to say you you mentioned, oh, I'm sure at some point in Hollywood, people were banking on a loss for other reasons. But that was kind of the whole career of Uwe Boll, wasn't it? He would get these like tax incentives to film in like Bulgaria and would have no interest in actually making a great movie. It just ended up being profitable for him to shoot in certain locations with some video game IP and it would be a flop, but yet the bottom line on the movie, it would still be a success. So I think that absolutely is an example of the producer's storyline playing out sort of in, in real life Hollywood. Mm, absolutely. Uh, in terms of the movies, I actually, this is probably... I mean, we've done quite a few trilogies at the point. I think this is our 12th official trilogy. I think this might be my favorite. Just every movie actually was pretty good in the trilogy. Like, obviously, there's varying degrees of, of success. And, you know, there were different shortcomings with, with certain movies. But I thought collectively, all three of the movies, I enjoyed watching all three of them. There was none of them that I came out of. And I was like, this was just like, I'm just going to rail on this movie in the review because it was not good. Yeah, and I don't think it's a secret to say that the producers was the, probably r bringing up the rear for me. But even then, 
it was such a short runtime and all the springtime for Hitler stuff was so brilliant that if it hadn't been for a sagging first 20 minutes, I, I think I would have, I would go so far as to say I would have liked the producers. So yeah, uh, the variety and quality in this trilogy has been one of the more impressive ones for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I know this is the, the meta version of getting into uh, the metaverse here, but I think a lot of the producers, I'm not sure if I had seen it for the first time, um, like back in 67, what I would have thought of the movie, but it was really interesting to see where Mel Brooks kind of got to start. Cause I know you had mentioned in the review, you're not a fan of Mel Brooks. I actually do like a lot of his, his catalog, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs. Um, there's quite a few of his movies that I think I watched them as a, a youth and probably influenced even my comedic style and, and taste and stuff like that. But um, to get to go back and kind of see where it all started, like, cause it is very rough around the edges in terms of the way it's actually shot and the, the technical aspects of that movie. Uh, but at the same time, I think definitely towards the end, the writing is just impeccable. And, uh, some of the jokes, like I say, <laughs> the whole, the whole final act of the movie is just laugh out loud funny. Like it is absolutely hysterical. And I think it does make up for basically watching Mel Brooks figure out how to make a movie for the first two two acts yeah and I'm, I'm passingly familiar with mel brooks other work um but it, it was a tough line to walk when you're invoking hitler and having a, a nazi sympathizer character and still try to be funny uh i thought that could have gone terribly wrong especially how old that movie is but again the nazi stuff was the funniest most compelling part of the movie for me so kudos for him to be able to to thread that needle um and I mean, I think he I displayed think, those comedy chops throughout his career. I think it's a true a true test of being able to make a comedy about Nazis because there's not a lot. Like when I was trying to find taglines um, for the tag and title of that episode, there's not a lot of movies that you can try and pull from. And the only other one I can think of that comes to mind is, of course, Jojo Rabbit. And, you know, Taika Waititi, I mean, absolutely love almost anything he does. But it is just an testament, I think, to them and their willingness to take a chance and again just make fun of nazis for being terrible terrible people yeah the only other example that i could think of was probably inglorious bastards so there's pretty much your three mm-hmm. that come to mind and you're yeah. talking about three i mean tarantino no doubt all-time great director uh mel brooks i'd say all-time great director uh taika watiti i don't think he's done enough work for you to say that yet but if you told me in 10 to 15 years that he was on that same level i would not be shocked at all Hmm. yep uh speaking so, of directors uh, um i don't think we really got much into robert altman i know you mentioned your your guilty pleasure of his that maybe most people wouldn't enjoy but are you Mm -hmm. familiar with kind of his hollywood arc and you know he was kind of a a glamour director in the 60s and and 70s and then as the blockbuster rose you know thanks to spielberg and lucas he you know fell out of favor and you could see that kind of he's a little bit bitter about that i thought that came through in the play are you familiar with his history at all uh not necessarily with his history i was looking through his I, I don't think you say, well, filmography. I was going to say discography, but that's music. Um, his filmography, and I'm, I'm definitely familiar with some of his works. I mean, the last one I think I had seen that I had noticed was Gossiford Park. And again, that was, I was probably a teenager when I watched that movie. And I don't remember hating it, but it's definitely one of those where I'm like, I'd love to go back and watch it with fresh eyes because I do like the director. I just, I'm not super familiar with a lot of his work. Yeah, and, and same, and I don't necessarily mean his actual filmography, but, you know, he he was considered a, a kind of Christopher Nolan of his era, not in, in terms mm-hmm. of the kind of movies he made, but like, hey, if Robert Altman's name is attached to it, there's some level of excitement just inherent in that, and... You know, <laughs> you say that, but it looks like he has pop. Yeah, he did Popeye, <laughs> so let's... <laughs> well, that was kind of his begrudgingly accepting trying to Mm -hmm. do ip related work uh which i think that even was not considered a success for him uh which further kind of alienated him from hollywood apparently he uh had a, a, a couple of problematic sets um so even his movies that were minor successes the studio kind of felt like hey if we're gonna put up with this level of headache you better give us jaws and star wars numbers and his stuff was just never going to do that I mean, I'll say the of the the stuff that I recognize. I've seen Mash. Mash is a great old dark comedy. I mean, it's 
you could not make that movie today. I, I do believe that there is a they have a, a football match in the movie. It's a military movie set in Vietnam. They have a, a like an inner military football match and they wind up basically recruiting another military guy on onto their team so that they could use him and his nickname in the he, he's an african American. he's a black man his nickname is spear trucker and i'm just like that's not a joke you can make today oh uh, God. yeah he was he was the quarterback for their team and his i guess i think it even says like his collegiate nickname was was spear trucker and you're like oh lord like that's not gonna fly in today's standards but um I just remember that, I mean, again, watching that, probably I was 18, 19, being like, oh, geez, like, this was definitely made at a different time. Uh, but I, even then, just the, the movie itself is, is good. Again, Osteen Stiggs is, is definitely a guilty pleasure of mine. So, I mean, he's got some great work in here. I just, I'm not, I guess, super familiar with with a lot of it though. Yeah. And the player kind of represented his comeback film in Hollywood. I think that's one of the reasons why so many stars wanted to make cameos is because they felt like this great director who had been dormant for 20 years was finally making kind of a big budget Hollywood proper movie again. And apparently the studio said if they, if he would cast a a more bankable star than Tim Robbins in the lead role, that they would fully finance it. Uh, And he said, no, uh, I'm making it with Tim Robbins and I'll find private funding to cover the difference. Uh, so I, I really, I really respect that decision. I, I do, but it also kind of goes back to Mulholland drive where the studio is trying to, the whole her theories that the studio is forcing you to choose the actor that they want. And it's just like, again, it just starts to eat itself. And you're like, Oh my God, there's a lot of truth in these kind of satires about what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in, in Mulholland Drive, whether you choose to believe this actually happened or not, you know, Justin Theroux, the director, I believe his name was Adam. At first, he's absolutely not willing to do it. And then he kind of realizes like, yeah, the forces at play, whether you just believe that they're Hollywood or supernatural, they're way stronger than me. So if they want this actress, I'll just give to get along. Absolutely. Uh, And I wanted to mention just briefly, if we could, because I had this for the player episode, but I thought it would be better in the wrap up to just kind of illustrate what Robert Altman uh, hated and loathed about the direction of Hollywood. I pulled the top 10 domestic box office, uh, you know, several years apart. I wanted to start in 1972. I'm not going to go one through 10, but of the top 10, only one of the 10 Uh, was either a sequel or received a sequel, and that was The Godfather. You fast forward to 1992, the year the player came out. Of the top 10, one, two, three, four, five, six of the top 10 were either sequels or would get a sequel. And then you go forward to 2002, uh, all but two of the top 10 were either sequels or had sequels. So uh, that thing we were talking about, the, the snowball going downhill, you can see it pick up steam by just looking at the top 10 box office movies by decade. And I think, I mean, if I'm honest and we're getting kind of in a personal opinions here, I think that's why I appreciate, I know there's gonna be a weird opinion here, but like Netflix and Disney plus and, and HBO where they're going so far down the miniseries route, because I feel I'm hoping that that's going to start accommodating. Cause I feel like a lot of those sequels is it's, people of a franchise i want more i love indiana jones i want more indiana jones so then they just all the studio does is see oh this is bankable we can make indiana jones movies and make money off of them and then you never get new ips because it's just constantly cash grabbing because again it's it's capitalism like essentially if people people decide what they want with their wallet so if they want more indiana jones the studio is going to make more indiana jones because that's how they make their money so i'm hoping that at a certain point when all the dust shuffle or uh, settles with all of the the streaming platforms making all of these mini series and stuff like that, my hope is that we actually start getting like good cinema and movies again because you can focus on that those people that want oh I want more of the character more of the character it winds up being you dedicate that to mini series where like you can you logically continue those stories and then movies can kind of become self contained again because it just we are straying so far away from where movies are just you know. It's, it's a mini series broken into six parts or three parts instead of six parts, right? Because of the length of them and stuff like that. So I'll be interested to see 
again in a couple of years the the state of of Hollywood and the studios and how exactly they're producing content. I uh, I think it's cute that that you think, wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking. All right. Because whereas you see that, I see. Um, well, hey, let's have a few seasons of Mandalorian. Let's have a few seasons of Boba Fett. Uh, you know, pick one other Star Wars in universe show, and then hey, five years from now, we'll have our version of the Avengers, and it'll but it'll be a Star Wars movie. It'll be a, a crossover between you know three or four Disney Plus Star Wars shows, and that'll be what the the cinema money is spent on. It's just combining mm-hmm. these television shows into super events. So that's the glass half empty uh, version of what you just said. Yeah, and I mean, even as I, I talk about, you know, the streaming platforms going back into series, I mean, our next two Knives Out sequels are going to Netflix. And again, we are not getting two sequels to a movie that honestly, again, love the characters. I'm happy to see more. But at the same time, I'm like, that story was in that was done. We didn't need more like so yeah but brett if if we look up in 10 years and there's a knives out cinematic universe i i would be delighted i mean at a certain point it would probably become watered down and stale but i'll take that over another you know we're dropping a city on a city or there's a a life destroying i mean purple alien travis you say that but i mean that might be the future of where everything's going look at that cobra kai i mean cobra kai has become a sensation and that is based on an 80s i would say family-friendly comedy action movie franchise and now like somebody i was arguing with somebody the other day that i think the 80s had the most influence on like pop culture like you're full of shit blah 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 it's just because you're that age and i'm like no like look at everything is now imitating stuff that happened in the like 80s action like late 70s 80s and early 90s action movies like you look at sci-fi like a video games like the guns they use and the technology like for god's sake the the motion tracker in halo is just the motion tracker in alien like it's just everything is is basically Everyone's growing up and they've watched these movies and now people are starting to imitate the movies or imitate the games that were imitating the movies. And like at a certain point, we're losing what the reference point was. But I still think that was one of the most influential times just on pop culture in general. Um, I mean, even a lot of the the Marvel stories you're getting right now are from comic books that were written during the 80s and early 90s. Like it's just I don't think people realize how ingrained a lot of that stuff is. And I don't know where I was, I can't remember where I was going with this, but just again, when we're talking about these cinematic universes that are, that's, it was it when we're not talking about superheroes and stuff like that. I'm like karate kid is getting its own universe now because of how popular that series has become. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, I think the concern is, will we ever get anything new again? Because if we are just reviving eighties and nineties properties now, and you know, two thousands, I mean, I guess the 2000s gave us Lord of the Rings as an IP that that would continue to be refreshed. But for the most part, it's just become a snake eating its tail. And, you know, in 89, it was incredible. Like, hey, Michael Keaton is Batman now. We used to think it was Adam West. Well, there was a 30-year gap between West and Keaton. And then Mm -hmm. after Keaton, it's just, you know, what, four short years to Val Kilmer, a couple years to George Clooney, Bale. So everything's just picking up steam. I, I wonder where the original content will come from. Are we just going to like, will there be a Cobra Kai reboot in 20 years or will they just yeah. make a new karate kid, which I guess they already did with Jaden Smith. So like, yeah, they, is Jaden yeah. Smith going to appear on Cobra Kai at some point? I wouldn't rule it out. Who knows? Yeah. And even to your point, I mean, you're looking at Batman. I mean, for God's sake, that between that and Spider-Man, I don't know what, what franchise IP has been rebooted the most frequently in as, as short a span because you have to think it was christian bale then ben affleck ben affleck didn't do well so now it's robert peterson or patterson right pattinson like, we're already pattinson ah, you know tomato tomato i've heard it both three ways um <laughs> but and then with spider-man you had toby then you had andrew garfield then after the second movie immediately went to tom holland and like and even at that point we have the 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 into the spider-verse with sony i'm like we're just gonna have a bunch of spider-man going around all of the time like i mean the the funny thing is is to, to bring up again spider-man into our uh, no way home like we're now getting to the point where we're just taking all of the franchises and putting them together like oh no they all now exist together in the, in the same place and i think that was one of the things i actually hated about we didn't review this with space jam new legacy is like it was how blatant that's what warner brothers like 
that's the future of Warner Brothers is they they just want to combine their universes because there's a point where like LeBron is flying with Bugs Bunny and it's just like they've literally illustrated oh that's the Matrix world and it's a it's a globe with Matrix things happening and over there is you know Game of Thrones world and you're like oh my god this is this is literally where we're going is it's just how can we now take these IPs and just literally mash them up and muddle them up into you know the most profitable things possible yeah i didn't have the privilege of seeing space jam a new legacy but weren't the the dudes from clockwork orange didn't they appear somewhere in the movie uh, yeah yeah they did and i think they actually they did in the trailer and it caused such an uproar i do believe in the final they they digitally altered them to where they put black and white stripes on them so they just look like generic criminals <laughs> <laughs> if i'm not mistaken i think that that's how they fix that but yeah no it was just yeah it was just throwing as much into it as possible I, I think the first time i saw that was actually ready player one which i did not think was a very good movie but that was another thing where like they were just betting on nostalgia and like at the very end it's just like it's just trying to pick out like oh that's a character from this franchise and from that ip and this that and the other and yeah as we're, we go closer and closer to the the metaverse it's just like okay when do we get something new when we can just start mashing stuff up you know Maybe. it's the the mickey mouse as luke skywalker and you're like fuck me i don't want this Maybe a, a special edition Hollywood Chop Shop we need to do is just make a series of quick pitches a la The Player, but updated for 2022. Because if The Player was made today, it would be just exactly as you described. Instead of the, you know, it's a political thriller, but it's got heart, you're basically just saying which IPs you can stitch together. You know, it's like, hey, you know, Game of Thrones was super popular. They use swords. Uh, Brad Pitt would be willing to reprise his role as Achilles and and cross over into yeah. the Game of Thrones universe, so we can have Game of Thrones and Brad Pitt. And somebody would be like, "Well, didn't Achilles get killed at the end of the Troy?" And it's like, "Ah, you know, he was resurrected by uh, the magic of the Game of Thrones world." It's gonna be Mortal Kombat, but instead of Mortal Kombat characters, it's gonna be different wizards and magicians from within the Warner Brothers. So now Gandalf is gonna have to face off against Snape for the for, in order to save the Magic Verse. And, and, and guess what? You do that, you make it. You have Mortal Kombat as the skeleton. That means we can release a fighting game as well, and that's double the profits. <laughs> You joke, you joke, Travis. I do believe WB Games has trademarked the 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 term uh, metaverses, and they are actually making their own, basically like Super Smash Brothers, but it is all of their IPs. Like, so Rick and Mar Morty are fighting against Batman, and you're just like, stop. And guess what, <laughs> like, Brett? That will make a boatload of it. fucking money. Yes, I will probably yeah. buy it as well. So I can bitch all I want, but guess what? Like you said, you vote with your wallet, and I'm like, oh, I can, I can shoot, I can be Rick Sanchez, and I can fucking, you know, kill the Flash, absolutely. And you know, if you rate it M for mature, where we can get some risque dialogue, yeah. And you know what? You can charge me for more character skins. I can get an alternate Rick. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, to, to, to kind of talking about this trilogy, I both love and hate what we did because it is, like, very blatant what's happening, and I am just as much part of the problem as, I guess, Hollywood is. Yeah, I guess that, that was my biggest takeaway from this trilogy is, yeah, inside Hollywood, they've known that it was soulless since 1967 at the very least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't know how you fix it because again, it goes all back down, back to money. Like the yes, the the studios could start trying to release new IPs to try and make money that way to create the foundation, but they're not going to take those risks when they know, oh, we can just make a Flashpoint movie, and guess what? Now we can Michael Keaton can reprise his role as Batman, and you're just like, and us uh, the nostalgia hounds are like, oh my god, I get to see Michael Keaton as Batman again, and I'm like. But I don't need to see Michael Keaton as Batman again. Yeah. And, you know, if you're an actor at a certain point when these when, you know, quote unquote, old school prestigious roles are drying up, it's like, yeah, you can bust your ass and make, you know, an Apple TV plus original show and, and try to get some traction there. Or, hey, you can just take a 20 million dollar payday to reprise a role you played in 1989 and, you know, give us three weeks of shooting and boom you know you've made your well, salary was for a year 
that was the joke i think like right around 2010 where harrison ford just kept reprising like he redid han solo he did decker from uh blade uh blade runner he did indiana jones again it's like everyone's just joking like oh he's just going to kill off all of his characters like basically he's reprising any of them so that he can he can be done with them like and then that didn't wind up happening in the writing which but it would have been hysterical if that's what he was doing is like i'll be indiana jones but he has to die at the end <laughs> well and he was getting you know tremendous paydays to do that so i'm oh, sure that did not hurt yeah. his feelings um but yeah overall I, fun fun trilogy that we put together really did like i said and enjoy all of the uh, the films that we that we reviewed it is just it's sad that i mean back in 92 that you know somebody was already making a satire about this and it has just gotten increasingly worse i mean didn't i think i read the other day that they're trying to make a sequel to gladiator and you're like how like how are we making like oh that's been in the the works for quite a while right but it's i i mean for the fact that they're bringing it up again means that it's it's getting steam somewhere all right give me a second i'll cut this out but charlie has to use my chair 10 seconds. Uh, I didn't look like she did agree to it because she was at my door frame. <laughs> All right. You ready? No, Dada pushes you. It's Dada's chair. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Can you say goodbye? So, I mean, this is actually going to wind up being one of our longer wrap-ups, but um, do we want to get into some of our other segments, or did you want to talk a little bit more about just the the movies as a whole? No, I think we should jump into the other segments. All right, so let's go ahead and split up. We're going to go ahead and split up things a little bit, because we, we do our objective-subjective review. Then we do the Rotten Tomatoes game, where you have to tell me critically and audience-wise where these movies ranked up. And then we like to do our little character swap. So I think we should start with where these line up on Rotten Tomatoes. We'll follow that up with character swap, and then we'll finish out with where we rank everything. All right? Sounds good. So, Mr. Santana, let's get into it. Using Rotten Tomatoes as our aggregate score, right? Because it's a pass-fail. I want you to tell me how you think these movies ranked with the favorite being number one, the lowest score being number three with critics. Where did the critics land? <clears throat> I'll say number one is the player. Uh, okay. Cause Hollywood loves a, a movie that just jerks off Hollywood. Um, even if it's in a negative light, <laughs> even if it's in a negative light, you show enough of the glitz, they still like it. I, it, it's funny you say that because Altman after it came out said, uh, we weren't nearly mean enough because people are still liking this. <laughs> So, yeah, mm. you nailed that. Um, number two, it's going to be tough because I'm assuming the producers has a very limited amount of reviews. Um, so uh, 73. It has 73. Mulholland Drive has 185. And the player had 64. If that gives you, if that changes anything you think. I'm going to say the producers takes number two because I think there'll be a lot of retrospective reviews. And Mulholland Drive will will bring up the rear, but I still think they'll all be strongly reviewed. Okay, uh, they are all certified fresh, and you did nail the order. Do you want to give us any numbers? Do you want to guess wh- what do you think the percentage of critics that appreciated the player was? I'll say ninety two percent. Ninety eight. That's the out of sixty four reviews. Hollywood loves itself. 
<laughs> Do you want to get take a take a swing at the producers? 1967's the producers, by the way. I'll say 90 90%. Nailed it. 90. Mulholland Drive. I think Lynch is always going to be polarizing. He just can't help it. I still think it's going to be strongly reviewed. I'll say 82%. 84. Okay. Very good. You, you had your finger on the pulse there. All right. So let's swap it up. Audience scores. Um, let's see. Mulholland Drive has 100,000 ratings. The player has 10,000 plus, And the producers have 50,000 plus ratings. Where do you think these stack up according to the audience? I'll still say number one is the player. Actually, you know what? I think it'll be the exact same order. It is the exact opposite. Mulholland Drive, do you want to guess numbers before, or do you want me to just go into numbers? No, just give me the numbers. Mulholland Drive clocks in at 87% approval, the producer's at 85, and the player at 84. It makes me wonder... I mean, 84 is still a strong audience score. It makes me wonder... The people who didn't appreciate it, are they the people that I described on the review as maybe I wouldn't recommend it to? Like you just see a few movies a year and you learn about a movie when you see a trailer for it in a theater. So the only splat for the player that is on just the base page is it's supposed to be a scathing. uh, It's supposed to be scathing, but the pleasure it affords is like what you get from watching the Oscars, celebrity spotting and in jokes. Uh, yeah, I don't. I think that proves my point. Uh, if you are in on the joke, it can be funny. If you're not, they rarely are. So that tracks. Uh, top audience review was it doesn't start off well, but overall, well played. What does they gave it a three star? The player doesn't start off well. Yes, uh, that person's a moron. Yeah, Brett's like that was Roger Ebert. <laughs> Roger Ebert. All right, so that concludes our uh, our uh, critic and audience reviews. Let's go ahead and do character swap, and then we'll end this thing with our our subjective and objective ratings of these three movies. Uh, Travis, I'd love to know what your character swap is. I, I didn't go into much detail. Um, usually, okay. with the character swaps, if I'm passionate about the swap, I'll I'll go into details. This one, I wasn't really passionate about a swap. Uh, so I went with what would be the most logical, and you kind of touched on it uh, when you were talking about, I'm sure Hollywood tries to tank productions for certain reasons. Um, mm-hmm. As of the player in 1992, um, unfortunately, uh, Zero Postel had passed away by then, I believe. Um, Gene Wilder, I think, was very much still with us. I think his last on-screen role was around 92. Um so I'm envisioning that Leo Bloom and his knack for creative accounting would be something incredibly valuable to a movie studio. So I think he would absolutely be one of Griffin Mills kind of nefarious. Uh, we can milk this baby for all it's worth kind of money men uh, for his newly acquired role that he has at the end of the player, which I think is like the president of the studio. I could see Leo Bloom being the guy who, milks money out of every project that they do Mm-hmm. okay i can dig it uh just to give perspective gene wilder's last performance was actually in 2002 2003 on two episodes of will and grace uh, are you sure about that i'm looking at it right now i knew he had done something in the late 90s in 1999 he did a tv movie of alice in wonderland where i remember he was the mock turtle Okay, maybe maybe what I saw was his last theatrical performance was like in the early nineties. Might have been, yeah. It looks like it's a bunch of TV series. Yeah, basically ninety three, he starts doing a bunch of TV series. Yeah, he doesn't do or in TV movies, he doesn't do another actual film movie after. Gotcha. It looks like okay, well then, hey, that makes me feel better about my choice because he clearly was still with it for at least another decade after the player. So yeah, I could see him being a kind of the head money man. Of a, of a shady empire run by Griffin Mill. What do you mean still? I mean, you're acting like he's dead. Gene Wilder? Yeah. He is very much dead. What? 
Are you, no. are you trolling me? No, no. No, you can't. You don't tell me that. What? 2016, what? I love Gene Wilder. It was sad when he died. I mean, not as sad as as uh, Paul Walker, but it still hurt me. Listen, I will tell you right now, no joke, Paul Walker is probably the, the worst celebrity death I've ever had to deal with because it was just so out of the blue. Um, he was kind of being dumb, though, so... He was, but it's like it was one of those like you just expected the Fast and Furious to keep going. Like you're just like, oh my god, Paul. Oh, I mean, like it does. They'll just well, that's use true. CGI just we, him <laughs> if they have to. Uh, I would say Alan Rickman was probably next up there, and it was one of those like Alan Rickman was just older, so it was like it sucked because no one knew what was going on. But uh, I think just yeah, in terms of celebrity deaths, like what? Paul Walker just came out of nowhere. Well, if we're gonna get morbid and talk about celebrity deaths that hit you the hardest, I have to go with Anton Yelchin. Oh yeah, that one, that one was just yeah. And like, to your point, like Paul Walker like died in a fiery ball because they were speeding and being idiots. Like his death was just like Anton's was like oh my god, like that was just legitimately tragic. What happened to him? Yeah, and again, not to make it too morbid here, but what an awful, awful way to die. So for the audience who doesn't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially what happened was he was he had parked his car on uh, his driveway which had a slant to it and went to basically go look at his gate and for whatever reason the vehicle went into reverse and pinned him between the vehicle and the, he got pinned between the vehicle and the gate and basically just Suffocated. died in agonizing pain yeah 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 and apparently it was a some sort of recall on the jeep that he was driving where if you put it in park if you weren't careful it would look like it was in park but it was really in neutral which is what happened Yep. So, but yes, to your point, that was, man, that that one was like, oh boy, that one hurt. Um, so for my character swap, I uh, I wanted to swap out Phil and just cut him out, and I put in Diane Selwyn, aka Betty from Mulholland Drive, because my thought process is, this is. This is after she has been looked over and this is like her last ditch effort to try and, and make it in Hollywood. And she's written her like true to life story and tried to give it to Griffin Mill and Griffin Mill overlooks it basically because there's no happy ending. And basically that sets her off trying to actually get revenge on him. And then the movie plays out much like it does only it's kind of a merging of the two. She does wind up killing herself in the end too. Um, but at the, again, she's trying to get revenge on Griffin for, for essentially she feels like he is protecting Hollywood because he refuses to, to bring light to her story. Which would very much play into the player in general, because at the end of the player, the only character that's really punished is the morally sound ex-girlfriend of Griffin Mill. Every other sleazy mm -hmm. player kind of gets what they want. So that would kind of line up with Betty. Uh, again, having a tragic ending, just like she does in Mulholland Drive, and just like every noble character in the player does. And maybe even play, you know, tying a little bit of like the sixth sense or something like that, where she winds up killing herself, but either kills or frames Griffin for her death. So, you know, ultimately he kind of gets his comeuppance too. But that was the character of it took me a while to come up with that too. Like, I was really like, where the fuck, who would, all these movies, who would you swap out? And that's that's ultimately where I landed. Yeah, I think it was both an easy and a difficult swap to make because, again, it's the meta showbiz trilogy. You can really transport characters at will, but, you know, what's going to be the most compelling way to do it? So I really mm -hmm. liked yours. Yep. Not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> I couldn't help it. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go ahead and and wrap this baby up objective and subjective review or rankings of these movies uh so anybody this is your first wrap up we love to do an objective and a subjective ranking because you know we love to put our critics hat on and we can look at a movie you know on its technical level and its acting and and everything about it and know which movie deserves to be the best but that doesn't always mean that's the movie you liked the best or you resonated with so we like to do our subjective ranking which is just what we personally like the best and then the objective is if we are looking at this through a critic's lens, you know, what what we thought the best movie was. Um, so since I had you start off 
with character swap i'll go ahead and start off with this uh, i'll do my my objective give you a chance to do your objective and then we'll we'll follow it through with subjective so objectively i think i would put this as the player mahal and drive and then the producers I don't think that should be too much of a surprise for anybody who listened to the the other three reviews. I think collectively the player has better acting, the cinematography, uh, the story, everything is a little bit more cohesive. I think just it has the whole package. Uh, Mulholland Drive is just weird, and we joked about it where, you know, David Lynch winds up pulling it off like he always does, but at a certain point it is always he's kind of flying by the seat of his pants as opposed to it actually being kind of conceived and followed through. And even some of the stuff he does, like, I don't know if it plays through or you just have to assume like, well, it's a fever dream. So we just have to kind of like take it at face value. Um, and then just the producers and it's Mel Brooks's earliest work. That first 20 minutes is a little rough to get through with zero, just screaming at the camera. Um, it does pay off at the end, but I do think it is just, I mean, again, you're watching Mel Brooks basically learn how to make a movie. Yeah, I'm not too surprised by that ranking. Um, I think objectively, to me, the other player, definitely number one. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm going to go objectively here. So less my opinion, uh, more what I think the general opinion would be. I think Mulholland Drive is number two, producers number three. I really don't have much to add because I think you nailed what holds the producers back uh, on an objective level. Uh, you know, the kind of crude filmmaking of a first timer and a really bad way to start a movie. Um, so, yeah, objectively, I, I can't much argue with that. I think I'll have more to say with my subjective, though. All right. Well, with that, I'll uh, I'll let you hand, uh, handle subjective first. What okay. was your subjective ranking of these movies? Subjectively, I still put the player number one. Uh, to me, the gap between the player and the other two movie, in terms of my personal enjoyment, is is pretty wide. Um, again, s doing these reviews, I mean, we've talked about it. Sometimes you have to break movies up. You know, watch an hour one night, finish it the next, uh, just to make sure you're able to give it your full attention. I was worried that the player was going to be like that for me, that I have to break it up before I started it, just because I was starting it pretty late. But within the first 15 minutes, it totally had me, uh, and I was along for the ride. So tremendous, high recommend for the player. Here's where it's tough for me, um, because it's it's then asking you, what do you value more in a movie? Uh, not hard to say that the producers is infinitely more funny than Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive, not not exactly <laughs> going for comedy. Um, the highs of both movies are extremely high to me. Um, when Lynch is at his best, it's that atmospheric. I feel like I'm in a dream, or is it a nightmare? Um, and when he's pulling that off in Mulholland Drive, uh, goosebumps. I'm I'm thinking of go ahead, go ahead and give me a little bit of the cowboy if you could, Brett. No, you're not listening to me. That scene gives me chills. Even your impersonation of the cowboy gives me chills. Uh, the producer, Springtime for Hitler, hilarious to me. Absolutely hilarious, especially given the age of this movie. Like, Mel Brooks had just a nose for satire uh, unrivaled by anybody of the era. That being said, I prefer Nightmare slash dream kind of experiences more than a funny musical. So subjectively, Mulholland Drive just beats out the producers. So this is a tough one for me as well, um, because a lot of times my subjective winds up coming down to runtime. <laughs> and, you know, Mulholland Drive is two and a half hours and the producers was an hour and a half. So if I'm going to sit down, like which one would I rather sit through? At the same point, the producers has some clever moments earlier in, in, in the film. It's just really that third act that where it really shines. Um, but again, if you're only having to sit through an hour to get to the last 30 minutes, it doesn't feel as bad as having to sit through two and a half hours to get to, you know, I don't want to say the big reveal in Mulholland Drive is is that staying force and the reason you should watch the movie. Um, I, 
and again, this is another one where we go into like, what mood are you in? Like how, you know, what am I more looking for some kind of psychological thriller? What's the likelihood of I would go back and, and watch these movies? Um, and that's where I, I might upset you a little bit with this one, Travis, because I think I might actually put producers subjectively as my favorite movie of this trilogy. Um, just because I think if I was to go back and watch, that's probably the one I would most likely on a whim go back and watch. Um, after that, it would be The Player, and then I think it would follow up with Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive, you just have to be, I think, in just the right headspace to want to watch that movie if you're not doing it for a review. Whereas I, I think I could fall into the producers pretty easy. I've got no beef with uh, selecting the producers over Mulholland Drive. The fact that you picked it over The Player, that surprises me just because – I mean, I guess it's the not producers to say, is more of an out-and-out comedy. I will say that. Yeah, and I just I think it's I did deeply enjoy the producers, and it and honestly, it is it's very close between the player and the producers because I don't know on a whim which one of those I would put. I this is honestly what I think my my beef with the the player is is I don't think that they did the film noir aspect of that movie justice and I think that's what knocks it down a little bit is because I love the film noir genre and again we're talking subjectively here I love that genre so when you kind of play in that space and you don't pull it off or you kind of like fake it to me that it gives me like a like I would have rather just not done the film noir and this just been a satire on how shitty like what's his face is like uh, of uh, Griffin Mill was, or the produce, or the uh, yeah, the the studio execs and stuff like that. Like, I don't think you needed the the murder film noir aspect of that movie to make that movie work. I don't know why it was kind of shoehorned. And I I know it's based off of a book, and I don't know if the book does a better job with it. And again, the the film noir aspect again is it just kind of gets wrapped up on a pretty little bow in the last five minutes of the movie, where it's like if it was that un- insignificant, then why was this like a core vehicle to move this movie forward because you already were dealing with griffin's paranoia because he thought he was losing his job to to larry levy so like you didn't need to add more onto it with the the murdering of the writer other than the fact that you needed to like some weird vehicle for him to get with the girlfriend and at that point you could have had it been larry levy's girlfriend because that would have been really fucking weird if like he was also like trying not to get caught or like one of the studio execs daughter or something like that. Like, I just think that there are other avenues to have made that work without bastardizing film noir. And I think that's honestly why I put the producers just slightly above the player. It's just because I would have expected more from that aspect of the movie. Whereas the producers, it's a comedy and it just delivers on a comedy. Like it takes a little bit to get there, but when it gets there, like it is just pure comedy and, and fantastic. That's fair. I will give you that the player, by trying to do the film noir and then tying it into, hey, his life is now the script that is being pitched to him. It's really going for being almost too cute. Uh, It sounds Mm -hmm. like you think maybe, yeah, it got a little too cute, and I, I can't argue with that. And furthermore, I would say if you told me that you would select the producers, you just skip the first 15 minutes of the movie, I I would. I could easily back you up in the assertion that it's mm-hmm. every bit as good as the player. It's just, man, that 15 minutes is just it's... a pair of concrete shoes trying to swim through the river. Yeah, you could have... you it, it establishes that Zero is a sleazy son of a bitch pretty quickly and then just decides to draw that out. And then we get into the whole screaming match and how basically Zero and... Shit, what's his name? Um, Leo? Owen. Leo, sorry, not Owen. Oh, Leo, how their relationship starts to, to build off of that. And it's just like, it does. It just takes so long to get off the ground. And I don't know if like, I'm not very familiar with stage performances, if that's a thing in, in stage, like that's how you set that up. Because again, you have so few sets, you kind of have to condense everything to, oh, this is where they, they meet and they everything, the entire exposition and everything is set up in the first 20 minutes in one set piece. But like, again, it, Mel Brooks chose to make in a movie and not a play first so he didn't have to do that um but i still think again i just i thoroughly enjoyed the back the backside of the producers Ooh, do you Mm -hmm. get that backside brett (laughs) uh 
So, I mean, I think that about wraps us up. Uh, we can do a little bit of housekeeping. I don't know. Do you want to tease the next two trilogies or just the next one? Uh, let's just do the next one right now. Just the next one? Okay. Yeah. So our next trilogy is going to be the Hill to Die On trilogy, where we chose a actor, a writer, and a director with the last name Hill. Um, so for our actor, we chose Jonah Hill, and we're going to be reviewing Superbad. Uh, that has a certain special spot for me and Travis that I'm sure we're, we're going to get into. Uh, for the writer, we chose Joe Hill, which for anybody who doesn't know is actually Stephen King's son who wrote the, uh, I think, I don't know if he wrote the adapt, uh, adaptation or just straight up just wrote Horns. Uh, he, um, he wrote the book and both. then was a co-writer on the script. Okay, so he wrote Horns, which stars Daniel Radcliffe post Harry Potter. And then for the director, we chose Walter Hill, and we'll be doing one of his names or one of his top movies with Forty Eight Hours. So, you can get ready for that. We're uh, we're looking forward to jumping into our, our Hill to Die on trilogy. But that does it for me. I, as always, I appreciate everybody sticking around, hanging out with us, and uh, we hope to see you back for the next trilogy. Ah. Do you not have a any anything you want to add to? Well, on, on a meta level, I was just thinking about you know, if if my my if my voice sounds better uh, this week uh, than in weeks prior, it's not through. I had the equipment the whole time for the past you know five months. I've had a nice professional podcast mic so I could sound half as good as Brett here. It turns out, uh, you know, I'm a little bit technology, uh, challenged. And, uh, even though I was talking into this mic the whole time, my actual laptop mic was picking me up. So hopefully I felt, I sound better this week than in weeks past. If you like this audio better, I assure you going forward, this should be the quality that you can come to expect from the Hollywood chop shop. <laughs> the only thing that could possibly make this better Travis is after doing that whole thing. If you found out you fucked up your audio again and it was just recording from the laptop again. <laughs> I, can't, I can't rule it out. So, uh, yeah, if, if that ends up being the case, Brett, go ahead and record a separate little thing clowning me at the beginning. Uh, that way, when I play it back, I'll know before I even hear my own voice. <laughs> Will do. Will do. Uh, but yeah, as always, I appreciate everybody listening and, uh, I will see you next week uh, here at the Hollywood Shop Shop.